Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, our podcast on religious liberty and end time events. And I have a very special guest here today for a special COVID-19 edition of our episodes in our series, Elder Dwayne Lemon. Elder Lemon, thank you for joining us here today. Uh, thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Elder Lemon, can you tell me what you're up to nowadays? Well, uh, I'm kind of up to what a lot of people are at this present time, which is uh, right now a lot of us are in quote-unquote isolation or, you know, stay at home, quarantined, whatever terminology we choose to use. But uh, what I have found is that even when I am home, I uh, am still privileged to share the Word of God with others. So we've been doing a lot of Zoom meetings, conference calls. I do have a couple of Bible studies because here in Massachusetts, even in the midst of the COVID-19 crisis, we uh, still are not at a state of lockdown that we cannot, you know, visit a place where it's under 10 people. And I have a home where I go and visit a couple of folks and do Bible study with them. So we're staying very busy between my bride and I uh, ministering to our own children, which has been an absolute heavenly blessing, as well as still studying with God's people in different places and most certainly over the Internet and over the phone and so on. So God is good, man. I'm still busy working for the Lord and that's the way I would have it. That's a wonderful report. Now you are originally from New York city. Is that correct? Oh yes. Yes, I am. And New York. Do you have people that you personally know that's affected by COVID-19 right now? Well, when you say affected, you know, there's two ways. So obviously affected meaning afflicted with it or affected meaning they don't have it, but they are definitely impacted by the things that's happening around them because of the disease. So if you're talking about actually afflicted with COVID-19, no, there's no one in New York that I've been in contact with that actually has the disease. But have I been in contact with people who are in New York experiencing the lockdown, uh, battling with some of the fears and so on, and, you know, even you know, kind of inquiring and asking, hey, what is this all leading to? And I'm talking about people who are not Christians. Um, Definitely. I have been in contact with some people of that nature. And how do you respond to those non-Christians that are asking what's going on? How do you respond to those questions? Well, one of the things that I let them know is I, I really just help them understand, you know, in a time of perplexity and confusion, and it seems like no one from the highest of our government, meaning the president, his staff or anyone else has the answers. I will tell you, there is someone who does have the answers and that's God. And so what I found is that it has been incredibly easy to direct the minds of, you know, one of the guys of my friends from back in the days when we used to party and dance and do all sorts of stuff together and sin, but we're still friends today. And he said, Hey man, does the Bible talk about this stuff? And I said, well, actually, there are some things in the Bible that speaks to what's going on right now. And so it's been very easy to transition. My mother, my mother-in-law, rather, you know, she also, she would not consider herself a Christian. And, you know, she also has just been completely open to understanding what's going on right now. And is there any hope? Is there any comfort? So I'm finding that this season that we're in right now is an extremely opportune season for sharing the gospel. This is wonderful news that people oh, are yeah. open. Uh, it's just sort of like September 11, is it not? Oh, man. I mean, it's, that's really been on my mind. It, you know, I said, I don't recall, you know, in my lifetime, these 48 years that I've been alive, that I, I don't recall another event like this since 9-11. And so, yeah, I actually see some degree of, you know, parallelism between the impact that 9-11 had on our world. And ever since that, it was never the same. In like manner, you know, we're not out of the coronavirus crisis yet, but I am sure that, you know, our lives are never going to be the same. There's going to be another change and a shift, and uh, we're going to have to learn to adjust with that. But yes, I mean, this thing is a major impact. In fact, it might even be more than 9-11 because, you know, 9-11 was pretty located in in its crisis, but, you know, COVID-19 is much, much more worldwide. So, you know, definitely, I've thought of that many times. Now, how does COVID-19 correspond to end-time events? You know, there's things that COVID-19 reveals as it relates to the Word of God, 
And there's some things it doesn't. And right now we're really in a time of extremes. You know, there's extreme right, there's extreme left. And thank the Lord, there's the balanced middle. And so you're kind of getting schools of thought that are coming, I would imagine, from sincere people. But nevertheless, uh, you can be sincere. But something I learned 28 years ago when I first got my hands on a little book called Bible Readings for the Home. And it stated that sincerity is a virtue but it is not the test of sound doctrine. And so you can be sincere, but you can still be sincerely wrong. And so, you know, what I'm seeing right now is you kind of have this, this uh, extreme of one side or the other. So one side says, oh yes, it, it's biblical and it's letting us know we are at the end of the world. And, you know, we are entering into the time of trouble or we are entering into the beginning or the ending rather of one of the woes of Revelation chapter nine and things of that nature. So you got some people who are taking COVID-19 and kind of making it this incredible sign that we now are at the end. I believe that that is an extreme position. But then you have the other side. The other side is also saying something that, again, I have no doubt they're being sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. And that is that, nope, COVID-19 has absolutely no prophetic significance whatsoever. And they have actually theological reasons for coming to these conclusions. But again, I do not agree with that position. I call that the extreme as well. So what do I believe? What I believe, if I can put it in super simple terms, is the COVID-19 crisis that has affected not merely America, but our entire planet, the COVID-19 crisis can be compiled in a collection of harbingers that the Bible clearly prophesied was going to take place as a sign that we're getting closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ and ultimately the end of the world. So when I say a collection, what I mean is if, if you think about Matthew 24, and verse seven. Now, again, on the scholarly side, even of our movement, there are many who think that, well, because uh, Matthew 24, Jesus was answering the question to the disciples and saying, you know, uh, these are the things that's going to happen before the destruction of Jerusalem. What they say is that once the destruction of Jerusalem came, these things no longer had any application, even to the last of days. And I thoroughly disagree with that because there's, a, there's one word in Matthew 24 and verse 3 that lets me know that the, it was not just the destruction of Jerusalem that was on the mind of the disciples. And the word is a very simple word. It's called and. And that word and in the Greek is called kehi. And what it means is in addition to. So if you study the Bible carefully in Matthew 24, the Bible definitely acknowledges that after Jesus said not one stone will be left upon another, the disciples did say, okay, when shall these things be? But then they said, and kehi, in addition to, what is going to be the sign of your coming and ultimately the end of the world? So the disciples wanted to learn and understand a collection of thoughts that Jesus presented in times past. You'll remember it was shortly before this time in Matthew 24 that Jesus told the disciples, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house and many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And when I come again, I will receive you unto myself. So it wasn't long ago that Jesus actually told the disciples, I'm going to go away, but I'm going to have another coming. So now the disciples are taking advantage of this opportunity to want to know everything. When is the destruction of Jerusalem going to happen? But also, when are you coming? And what is the, what are going to be the signs? And so Jesus spoke to that which was going to be partially fulfilled as it relates to the destruction of Jerusalem, but then Jesus spoke to a much more broader application to our day. This is where Matthew 24, 7 kicks in, where it talks about diseases. It's going to be one of those signs. And again, COVID-19 is part of a collection of diseases that we have seen that has hit not merely America, but our world. And so that's how I see COVID-19. At the bare minimum, it's one of the collection of harbingers that's letting us know that what Jesus said is true, that we need to get ready, and that we need to keep our eyes fixed and focused on him so that we may be ready because it's evident he's coming soon. So that's kind of like what I got, you know, in a super nutshell. 
So do you think that this event will directly lead to a Sunday law or this is just a sign of a collection of signs that are leading up to it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a collection of signs like, um, you know, we obviously as Seventh-day Adventists, we're privileged to look through prophecy through two lenses. We have the lens of the Bible, but we're grateful that the Bible did tell us that, that uh, you know, the last church is going to have this gift of prophecy which is, uh, of course, the testimony of Jesus. And we believe that gift to have been faithfully exercised through the writings of Ellen White. And she says in Great Controversy, page 589, that Satan is going to be working in these last days in a very vehement manner. And one of the things he is going to do is put into the air a deadly taint that is going to unfortunately be a pestilence that is going to kill thousands. And as a result of this, when it does this work, again, it's part of a collection of end time events. When it does that work, it does eventually say that it's going to lead to individuals to begin to look to God. And as they start looking back to God, they're going to realize that they need to come and to honor God. And in that honoring God, they're going to specifically look at Sunday observance and Sunday worship and their need to come back to that. And hence, it's going to ultimately play out in the establishment of a Sunday law. So COVID-19 is not the sign, if you will, but it's one of the signs, one of a collection of many signs that's all going in the same direction, leading to an end event, as you stated, which is going to be the Sunday law crisis. Definitely. That's how I see it. Now, there are some who think that closing our churches is wrong and that we are compromising our faith, that we should claim Psalms 91, that we should claim faith that God will protect us. What are your thoughts on that thinking? You know, I'm really glad you asked that question because, you know, when I look at Psalms 91, first of all, Psalms 91 is highly applicable to the time of Jacob's trouble. It is uh, Jacob's trouble spoken of in Jeremiah 30, 5 through 7. And Jacob's trouble is most revealed in Revelation 16, when we have the angels pouring out the vials of the wrath of God, the seven last plagues. And then we see Psalms 91 kicking in, which is where it's going to tell us that thousands shall fall at one side and another at another side, but none shall come by me. The reason why I believe we need to keep Psalms 91 in context is because, unfortunately, we have had both uh, Seventh-day Adventists who have been infected by the disease and have been healed. One of them is a dear brother of mine that I rejoiced in the Lord when I heard that he has been given victory and he's already back at work in service. A dear brother by the name of Tim Reisenberger. And it's like, you know, he was afflicted, but the Lord blessed him and brought him out of it. Then you have another gentleman. I didn't have the privilege of knowing him, but I think uh, you may have known him, Brother Peter. And Ivor Myers, apparently he was a member of Ivor Myers Church, and he was an individual who was has a beautiful record of being a gospel medical missionary, uh, blessing other people in his life. And he ended up getting coronavirus and he died from it. And so would we say then that the Psalms 91 promise somehow they missed it? What it's going to do if we do that is we're going to start putting ourselves in a position of judging other people. They're Seventh-day Adventists that love the Lord, but unfortunately they're being afflicted by this disease. And so, you know, that's something we gotta be very, very careful of when we start, you know, claiming things from the Bible and pulling it out of its context. And then when we see things happen, it positions us to now judge others. So keep Psalms 91 where it belongs. Psalms 91 is primarily dealing with that time when the plagues are gonna be falling and there's gonna be a people that are going to be alive during that time. And those are the ones going through the time of Jacob's trouble. And then we're going to see Psalms 91 in 100% accuracy. 10,000 are going to fall on one side, 1,000 on the other, but the plague shall not come nigh them. That's when we're going to see that fulfilled. Now, when it comes to the churches, you know, how should we, you know, respond to these things? Let's face it. We don't have in Scripture any example of a COVID-19 type crisis that has ever happened. Something where a disease is going worldwide, no one knows who has it or doesn't have it, and both the young and the old, the healthy and the sick are all being afflicted by it. We don't have any you know, account of disease that ever took place like that during biblical times. So 
we cannot pull an exact detailed instruction that God will give us. However, what we can do is we can receive principles. It's kind of like the idea if, you know, back in the days, a brother would come to me smoking weed and he would say, you know, is this wrong or is this right? And I would tell him it's wrong. He would say, where in the Bible does it say that I can't smoke weed? And if he's going to be super literal with me, then he's right. I can't show him anywhere in the Bible, but I can show him a principle that surpasses any particular age and is, you know, ageless as far as its impact upon humans is the principle of taking care of your body. And for that reason, I could show them that your body is a temple. It belongs to God. You should not do anything that defiles that temple for anyone who does that will be destroyed even by God. First Corinthians three and verse 17. So when we look at the principle from scripture, man, we got a lot of examples. So in Leviticus 13, in Leviticus 14, in Numbers chapter 5, in Deuteronomy chapter 23, in all of these different chapters of the Bible, and I'll read Numbers 5 just as one example, and you'll see this principle come out, right? So we're looking at Numbers, we're going to consider the fifth chapter, and I'm just going to go ahead and read verses uh, 1, 2, and 3. And let's watch this very carefully. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel, that they put out of the camp every leper and every one that hath an issue and whosoever is defiled by the dead. Then it says in verse three, both male and female shall ye put out without the camp, shall ye put them that they defile not their camps in the midst whereof I dwell. God has no problem with the idea of isolation. God has absolutely no problem with that because that is a practice that he did in ancient times. It was part of the hygienic principles, the hygienic laws. That And, and what was the bottom line of God doing this? I mean, you, you literally had people's uh, clothing that would get burnt up. You would have houses that would be torn down. And then you have people that would be isolated if there were certain diseases that was unfortunately affecting or inflicting the area or the person. So why was God doing all of that? The bottom line is, is because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he said in 3 John 2, beloved, I wish above all things that you prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. So God knew certain diseases can spread. And because they can spread, if somebody is afflicted with something that can spread and make everybody else sick, then the idea was to do some degree of isolation. And when sometimes it's identified, it would be quarantined to the point that if it could not be separated from the object, like a house or clothing, the thing would actually be destroyed. So God would go to very, what I guess some would call extreme measures to isolate an individual or a group of individuals that were afflicted with the disease so that they could have time to overcome it and also that they do not infect anyone else. Well, again, we don't have an example of a coronavirus type crisis that has hit our world in the scriptures. But what we can do is we can look to the word of God for principles. The principle is if we can minimize the gathering of a multiplicity of individuals for the sake of trying to figure out what's going on with this virus and how can we help prevent it better, et cetera, et cetera, then this becomes something that we should not say is an attack on our religious freedom because it isn't. There's nothing that has been taken away from us as it relates to our religious liberty. Yes, we cannot go to our churches or synagogues or mosques or temples like we normally would, but we're still privileged to teach and to preach and to share everything that we believe without a single bit of muzzling whatsoever. So I don't consider that an infringement upon our religious liberty because I'm still privileged to exercise it with the exception that we're living in the time of a pandemic. So when you look at things from this perspective, there's nothing wrong with the idea of isolation. And we don't know who has it versus who doesn't. We don't understand the nature of the disease. It was Mr. Fauci himself who said, hey, we have to be humble. He says, I've been studying infectious disease for 50 years, five zero. And he says, I have to admit, I do not understand the nature of this one. 
And so it is that right now, while we still have way too many question marks in our heads and we're seeing the healthy and, and the sick getting it, we're seeing the young and the old getting it. And by the way, Brother Peter, we're especially seeing the religious gatherings, the people are getting it. Like every time they come together, more and more people are getting afflicted and affected. I believe it was even in South Korea that one of the biggest ways that it began to spread out there started with a religious group of people that just kept coming together. And from that, many, many, many unfortunate diagnoses of coronavirus came about and it started to spread like wildfire. It's like, look, I can easily join the conspiracy theorists. I mean, I could say, uh-oh, you know, this is leading to the Sunday law. This man comes from a Jesuit school and this man. I'm like, hey, guess what? You came from your mother's womb. And the Bible says that all of us are born and shapen in iniquity. So we all have a bad past. We all have something about us that is not noteworthy. And we have reasons that people should not trust us. I'm not going to judge Mr. Fauci over the fact that he came from a Jesuit school. I'm going to judge him by his works. I'm going to look at what he does. And thus far, he hasn't done anything to cause me to keep him in high level suspicion. And we are literally counseled from the word of God not to get caught up into conspiracy theories and turning plausibility into truth. Let's deal with the fact that's in front of us. And when we get more truth, then we go ahead and expose it. But right now, we need to go ahead and realize this is something Caesar is asking us to do. And we ought to obey Caesar because it's not causing me to violate God's law. It's not causing me to turn my back on Jesus. It's just simply telling me for a period of time, I am not going to be able to go to a building the way that I used to when it comes to worship. We don't need to turn it into something bigger than that because it's not bigger than that right now. And if we do so, it's more of a conspiracy theory than a biblical prophetic fact. And that's something we got to guard our hearts against. So what do you think of these conspiracy theories among our people and also some not even thinking the virus is a serious threat, that it's a hoax? You know, we're told in the book Evangelism, page 182, I have been shown that it is the device of the enemy. Now, please watch these words. This is very important. It says, I have been shown that it is the device of the enemy. That means the devil created this concept. I have been shown that it is the device of the enemy to divert men's minds to some obscure or unimportant point something now watch this something that is not fully revealed or is not essential to salvation this is made the absorbing theme the present truth when all the investigations and suppositions only serve to make matters more obscure and to confuse the minds of some who ought to be seeking for oneness through sanctification of the truth. That's the book Evangelism, page 182. And so it, 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 this is the devil's game that we would muzzle the very clear truths from the Bible to get caught up into who potentially is a Jesuit or who's not, or is the coronavirus a real disease? Or is it not, hey, you know what? We're noticing that hospitals are empty when they're saying hospitals are full. And we get caught up in this stuff that quite honestly, whether it's true or false, it doesn't make me one step closer to Jesus. It doesn't make me one step more prepared. And it makes me one step more suspicious of everybody. So in other words, there's not good fruit that comes from these concepts when we begin to you know, just look at people and, you know, we cast out suspicions and cast out all these ideas of what they may or may not be up to. This is not our work. This is not our instruction that God has given to us. And it's an absolute waste of time. And it's a distraction. And as inspiration says, it's a device of the devil. So we need to leave the conspiracy theories alone. Stick to the facts. Stick to the word. Stick to the truth. Edify the people. Build them up and show them in a practical way how to get ready for what is coming, whether it's fully in its fulfillment right now, or if we see it's on its way to being fulfilled. That's a much better counsel, man. Now, there are some Christians and other people of political persuasions that believe that we should end social distancing soon for the sake of the economy. And it's acceptable that 
the vulnerable give up their lives for the prosperity of this nation. What are your thoughts on this idea? Even our people, some of our people are advocating this idea. You know, I admit that the coronavirus crisis has most certainly awakened me as well as my family to a greater need of preparedness. Um, you know, whether it's because of the loss of temporal prosperity, as well as uh, maybe some of the fears for the future, I can understand that. And I think that that's the motive that's prompting a lot of people to make these claims, you know, or to make these statements, you know, let's, let's hurry up and get back out into the work field and let's stop all the social distancing and let's go ahead and get back things as they used to be. And, uh, you know, so on. It's like, look, I think that that cry is not necessarily coming from common sense, but I think that cry is coming from people who are desperate. People are in a place of desperation. They realize, you know what? I have not prepared myself. You know, I think about an old accounting lesson I learned, which was when you budget in your home, you should have a savings. And back in the days, many, many years ago, over 20 years ago, we were told you should have at least three months of total household expenses saved. Well, the last ones that I recall hearing in, you know, financial advice, et cetera, is you should have at least six months of total household expenses saved. The problem is, is that you go to the average American, they don't have that, you know, and then you go to people who are, you know, following the truths of God's word, lots of, you know, homeschooling moms and one, you know, person is working in the home, et cetera. Listen, it's a tough time right now. And I understand that a lot of people are potentially crying out because they simply are going through the ringer. I mean, they're feeling it and, you know, thank the Lord, stimulus checks and these things are hopefully on their way and everybody will get them soon. But right now people are struggling. They can't even get toilet paper. So everybody wants life to get kind of back to normal. So I understand that, but there's a time that you got to come now. Let's reason together. Let's think this through. If we rush to get back into society as before, if we rush to get businesses back as before, and we all are willing to kind of just gamble our health in the process of it, what's going to happen is kind of like cancer. Isn't it interesting, Peter, that when a person first gets diagnosed with cancer, for some reason, if they have a shot of overcoming it, you know, as long as they apply themselves, they can, you know, especially if it's an early stage and things of that nature. But it's interesting. If that individual overcomes their cancer and they go a period of time without it, days, months, weeks, or years, if that cancer comes back, it seems like the cancer is almost coming back, as it were, with vengeance. And sometimes it's worse, and many a times the person does not recover. These principles we can learn even from physiology. If we rush too quickly to go back into society, back to business as usual, and all these other things, just so that we can suffer a major pandemic relapse, it's just gonna make everything prior to it seem like a rehearsal in comparison to what it's gonna be the second time around. Now, this is why, you know, by the grace of God, let us be patient, let us be prayerful, and let us do what we can to say, Lord, you know my circumstance. Corona caught me off guard, but it didn't catch you off guard. And so how can you help me, Father, in this situation? It's a call to greater trust. It's a call to trust in the God that we're going to trust anyhow in the time of trouble, when we're going to be in a much worse crisis than the coronavirus. And that would be the wiser approach to take rather than trying to rush out and immediately trying to go ahead and institute society back to the way it was and all of these other things at the risk of a terrible relapse, not just physically upon many of us getting sick, but a relapse of the whole economy just going down rapid pace and an even greater amount of suffering than what we've already seen take place through this crisis. So, yeah, man, that's my thoughts about those who are you know, really trying to, yeah, we want to hurry up and get things back out there. And we think they're going overboard. It's like, look, Sure. Do we have other countries? Uh, I think my wife was just listening to is either Thailand or Taiwan. They have like three deaths and they had like maybe 200 cases or something like that. They were very prepared. 
they did not respond to the coronavirus the way we are in America. So I'm not here to say that everything that America did is perfect. God forbid, I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that this is what America's doing and it's a rough situation for everybody. And the answer to this crisis is not to revolt. The answer is not to say, let's hurry up and rush our way through this. There is no such thing as rushing your way through this. We're all gonna have to go through this until we can get to some degree of normalcy. So this is where we need to be what Revelation 14 tells. Here's the patience of the saints. We need to be patient. We need to be trustful and hopeful and we don't need to make our moves too quick and definitely don't make any moves in the dark. And by God's grace, He's going to give us light and he's going to show us what's coming next and how to best be prepared for it. Now, as an end-time event preacher, how do you connect current events with the Bible and the spirit of prophecy? I say this because, as you and I know, when September 11 happened, there were a lot of people saying that this is it. Then when President Bush and the Patriot Act, and they said that this was it. And when the economic crisis happened in 2008, they said this is it. So how do we connect current events with... uh, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy? You know, what we need to do is don't try to put a circle in a square hole. It's like, don't try to make something fit that it clearly does not fit. What we need to do is recognize when you study Bible prophecy, you have to, number one, keep many things central. The first thing you got to do in Bible prophecy is you got to keep the centrality of Jesus you know, our savior, our beloved savior, the one who died that we might live and the one who lives that we might live forever. We have to keep him ever so central to the teaching. When we begin just telling everybody, oh, it's nearer. Oh, it's getting closer. Oh, look at that. Here we go again. Oh, it's getting closer. You're scaring people. You're giving a Christless message. You're not talking about Jesus. Or what you do is you call Jesus out like the way the devil would. You just call his name, but you don't glorify his character. The devil doesn't have a problem with the name Jesus as long as his character is not magnified. And so if you're going to be an end time preacher, number one, you must keep Jesus central. This is what Peter teaches us in 2 Peter 1 and verse 19 when he says, For we have also a more sure word of prophecy that we do well to take heed unto it as unto a light that shines in a dark place. And my favorite part, until the day dawns and that day star arises within our hearts. We need to present prophecy in a way that it causes the heart to long after Jesus. Not merely to run to Jesus because they're scared of dying. Because we already know Desire of Ages makes it very clear it's not the fear of punishment or the hope for reward. People should follow Jesus because they behold him in all of his loveliness. And how are they going to know except the preacher preach it? So that's the first thing that we need to do. The second thing we need to do is, as stated, don't try to put a circle in a square hole. It's like don't try to make every little event that happens in our world, even every movement with the Pope, doesn't need to be a report. Every sermon does not have to have the National Sunday Law. Some Seventh-day Adventists are so holy and righteous in their own eyes that they'd condemn Ellen White if she was alive because Ellen White preached many sermons and did not say anything about three angels, did not say anything about the Sunday law, and did not say anything about the close of probation. So, you know, it's okay to preach messages that doesn't always reference these exact points, okay? And another thing is, again, don't try to make something match that does not match. Not everything the Pope does, not everything that comes from the White House, not every Sunday closure of a business does not mean It's connected to the Sunday law. Stick directly to what the prophecy says. And then when we see a perfect match and we see a consistency in that match, that is when we can say, okay, this one looks like this is indeed a harbinger that should be referenced as it relates to Bible prophecy. These are the kind of things, man, that we have to keep in the forefront before the people because we don't want people getting caught up into a hysteria. I mean, you you mentioned some points that you and I are very familiar with. You know, 2001 and September 11, I mean, it pretty much had the same impact like what we're going through now, probably worse. I mean, people were in shock. I was in Midtown Manhattan. I watched the buildings. 
You know, I was right outside and could see the gaping holes in the building. I'll never forget that time. And it most certainly felt like Armageddon or something like that. It felt like this world is coming to an end. And then we had preachers that said it. They said this world's coming to an end. They gave years. They started saying, and again, I'm not doubting a man's sincerity. Again, it's just that you can be sincerely wrong. But we had preachers, oh, folks, in a few years, we're going to see a Sunday law pass. And they would connect everybody from President Bush to John Paul II. And the problem is, is we don't understand when we do that and then it doesn't come to pass, people's hearts become more hardened the next time around. And so we must make sure that when we teach end time events, do not go beyond what the prophecy says. Stick with what the prophecy says. Keep lifting up Christ in the centrality so that whether we see the Pope make a move or not, we're still excited about our walk with God because Jesus really is attractive and he is worth following him, being faithful, seeing our need for victory over sin. Not so that we don't have our probation closed, but I don't want to sin and hurt the one that I love. This May makes 23 years that my wife and I have been married. My marriage would not survive, Peter, if I just kept saying I can't commit adultery because if I do, it's going to discredit me as a minister. My children are no longer going to like me. And then my wife is going to leave me and probably end up marrying some other brother because I got to stay single because I'm the one that committed adultery and she didn't. That type of thinking is not going to secure me and secure my marriage. But when I travel, sometimes by myself, and when I go from place to place, and if a woman comes by and if she even dares to think that she could set something off with me, the very fact of me even thinking, what would this do to my God? What would this do to my bride whom I love? This becomes my motive of saying, absolutely not. There's no chance under the sun. Love has the power to cause a man to have complete victory over sin more than the fear of a Sunday law will ever do it. And it does not mean to stop preaching the Sunday law. It just means preach it in its proper context. Preach it in its place. And when you're done showing the facts about the Sunday law crisis, point them to the refuge, which is in the bosom and the arms of Jesus. This is what's imperative when we teach end time events. Finally, practical. If we're going to teach end time events, there should be things that people can practice. You know, uh, my family worship last night, we studied Jeremiah 29. And when we were studying Jeremiah 29, I showed my children something, you know, as it relates to the Babylonian captivity that God prophesied the children of Israel was going to go through. And I think this spells it out so beautiful. Look at what God did. In Jeremiah 29, God actually told the children of Israel this. It's in verse four. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. God actually gives practical instruction now that they see the crisis coming. They know that the crisis is coming. We're going to be in captivity. What does God tell them to do? He says, here's what I want you to do. Build houses. Dwell in them. Plant gardens. Eat the fruit of them. Take you wives and beget sons and daughters. And take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that you may be increased there and not diminished. And I love verse 7. And seek the peace of the city. You know how crazy this prayer sounds? It's like, hold up. These are the people that made us captives. But here goes God. Seek the peace of the city whither I have caused you to be carried away captives and pray unto the Lord for it. And here it is. God says, pray to me that I might bless the city, the very place that brought you captive. And why does God tell him to do that? He says, for in the peace thereof, you shall have peace. And so God was giving practical instruction. When you go into captivity, I don't want you going to war. I don't want any revolts. You're going to be slaves for 70 years. It is my judgment upon you. You need to bear it. But I want you to understand what you should be doing. And then he gives these practical counsels and he's telling them how to interact with the people, how to deal with their families, how to go about their worship with God. And ultimately, he closes with the promise, for thus saith the Lord, verse 10, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you. And perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place 
for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, and to give you an expected end. Prophecy should always be taught with practical instruction on how to deal with the issue. Don't just keep telling everybody what's coming, what's coming, what's coming, and then give some abstract generalization of a, of a council like just surrender your heart to Jesus. Like people know what that means. It's like give them practical counsel. Pray more. Study more. This is how you study. This is how you pray. Are there any differences that you have in your home between your husband and your wife? Let's talk about settling those differences. Here's how you can do that. You know, give practical counsel. If you're going to move out of the city into the country, here's how you do that. Here's going to be the context of country living. Here's what country living is versus what country living is not. And ultimately, close with the promise. Always close the prophetic teaching with the promise of God. Here is what God has promised he will do. This will not last forever. By his grace, he will come soon. He will deliver us and we will be in his arms forever. These are beautiful principles that we can teach when we're talking about how to go about, quote unquote, current events. Now, there are two popular current events that are going around that people believe that are end time event issues that will lead to a Sunday law. One is climate change and the other is that the secular left or communism or secular humanism or the left will bring the Sunday law. What are your thoughts on that? Well, again, when you look at some of the events happening in our world and climate change, we do see climate change in the Paris Agreement as far back as 2015. Yes, it was uh, instigated by the papacy. Yes, the, the, the Pope has uh, used this as a means of trying to bring folks together, even the meeting that was supposed to happen May of this year. You know, so do I believe that some of the instigations and the things that are happening with climate change, is it a decoy, if you will, for ultimately an effort of the papacy to try to bring about this, you know, unfortunate unity where it causes us to, you know, the ecumenical type of unity coming together and putting aside our differences rather than putting away our differences. Can it play into that? It's extremely plausible that it can. But again, we lift up these plausibilities more than we lift up the truth. This is our crisis, Brother Peter, is we begin making book after book, sermon after sermon and everything. Because, listen, people love hysteria. Let's just face it. People love hysteria. And so, yeah, no doubt there are individuals that are going to use uh, climate change, and they're going to say, yep, here we go. You see that right there? This is how we know that, um, you know, climate change is going to is going to pave the way for the papacy. And, and again, we're giving every report on everything and we're lifting up the plausible point more than lifting up the truth that is designed to make us free. So I don't have an issue if we make reference to the climate change agitations as a means of saying, this is a way that we can see that the papacy is trying to rally troops together and create a, a type of unity where ultimately they can you know, push their agendas forward. I'm not necessarily against that. It's just that I'm against the overwhelming way that we push a lot forward more than pushing the truth. And unfortunately, again, we, we turn almost everything, even the round events of the world and trying to fit it into the squares of prophecy. And that is where we run into trouble. Communism and humanism, again, you know, does it play a role as it relates to, uh, let's say, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 12, where it talks about, you know, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And then the next verse tells us, but men's hearts will become more and more wicked, more and more ungodly. Well, do we see these things happening as it relates to the rise of humanism and communism? Sure we do. You know, communism is very anti-religion, anti-Christianity. So do we see, and of course, humanism is as well. It exalts self above God. So do we see these things playing a role as it relates to, you know, some aspect of end time events? Sure. But again, in Revelation 13, it is very, very clear that there is going to be a religious effort that is going to be made. And there are going to be those who are going to seek to ultimately give homage to the papacy from the second beast, giving homage to the first beast. And they are going to represent many, many Christian principles as a means of ultimately bringing about a deception. Many of the leaders themselves don't know where all of these things are tending to. 
But we're going to see that take place. And that would not fit humanism and that would not fit communism. So therefore, we cannot put humanism and communism into a place that it does not tell the whole story of how the end time play out will be as it relates to prophecy. When the leading churches of the United States unite upon such points of doctrine as are held by them in common and then influence the state to enforce her decrees, this is what we're looking out for, as Great Controversy tells us. And when we see those things happening, which again, that means there's going to be some degree of a religious agenda. We're told again that they're going to be looking to uh, eventually come back to God. And the only way that we're going to have our temporal prosperity restored is when we come back to God and to honor his day, which they are going to claim is Sunday. So again, there has to be a role that the religious right, or if you will, is going to play as well. We're not just going to see the left, the humanism, the communism, but we're going to have to see that religious component, which does not come from that side. So I don't believe that we should you know, overemphasize the side of the movement while we totally neglect the other side. Final question. How should we get ready for Jesus to come? Ah, rend your hearts and not your garments. The Bible makes it very clear. There are two things that the Lord is waiting on, waiting on. The first thing I'll say before I even get to the two things is Psalms 139, 23 and 24. This should be the time that we are on our knees with tears and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. And if there is, lead me in the way everlasting. So the first thing is, is that we should be truly is searching our hearts to find out where is it that I have not surrendered myself to Jesus. We should start looking to our, our relationships, husband, wife, mother and father, brother and sister, family, parents and children, siblings, friends, brethren. We should start looking at where, where are the gaps at? Where is it that I am? I'm at variance. I'm at war with my own brothers or my own sisters. And then we should set our houses in order. We should start seeking peace and unity and love one amongst another. The two things that we know Jesus cannot come until these two things happen is John 17 and verse 21 and then John 13 and verse 35. The Bible says in John 17 and verse 21, and it tells us very clearly that if we're going to see Jesus come, John 17, it says that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And then in John 13 and verse 35, it says, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. These are going to be very key components in our evangelistic work that's going to produce this loud cry of Revelation 18. We cannot give a loud cry if we're still divided, if we still hate one another, if we still have bitterness and anger and resentment in our hearts. We can avoid eating meat. We can dress with long skirts. We can live way out in the country. We can do a lot of things that on the external looks right. But above and all, God makes it very clear in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says, I'm looking at your heart. I want to look at your heart condition because the problem that ultimately produced and transitioned Lucifer to Satan was the Bible says he was lifted up in his heart. And so the issue is a heart issue with God. And so we can do a lot of external stuff, right? Because I'm sure, you know, people are going to say, oh, to get ready, you got to get out of the city. To get ready, you got to start dressing right and vegetarian diet and da, da, da. And look, I'm an advocate of every single thing. I believe in dress reform. I believe in eating a healthy diet. I most certainly believe and am thankful for the principles of country living. I thank God for all of those things. They're blessings. But I know that you can live in the country. You can have a plant-based diet. And you can most certainly dress in a way that your body remains a mystery. And you can be thoroughly unconverted. And so what Christ wants is he wants his love to be the chief motivating factor for our dress, our diet, our lifestyles, you know, everything. And this is what makes our evangelism very impactful. And so these are the things that Christ really wants us to take a look at in a very serious way as we're watching prophecy unfold and we're watching all these events taking place. He wants us to really do some serious heart searching, heart surrendering 
to him, then make things right with your fellow man if you know there are some areas that are wrong, and then by his grace, through the unity of the spirit, as Ephesians 4 and verse 3 says, now we are in a position to do that gospel work and evangelistic work because I got the articles, Peter. 25% of Americans that are not Christians are now interested in the Bible. They want to know. There are Christians who have been going to church, but they have not been studying the Bibles. Over 40% of Christians who were just casually going to church are now studying their Bibles. And we are the people of the book. We know some things that the world needs to know under the blessed banner of the first, second, and third angel's message taught in its truth and purity. And now people's minds like never before want to know. Health is the topic of the day. This is the time for health reform, medical missionary work to go forward with mighty power and the love of Christ. There's so much that we can be doing right now for the honor and glory of God and for the benefit of our fellow man. But above all things, God says, my son, Proverbs 23, 26, my son, give me thine heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So my hope and prayer is that people will really be doing some heart searching and ultimately surrendering so that by God's grace, the work actually can get finished. Hello, Lemon. Thank you so much for joining us. I know your time is valuable. We greatly appreciate Amen. it. Before we end, can you say a closing word of prayer for us? Oh, yes, absolutely. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we are so grateful. We thank you, Lord, for your amazing love towards us. We thank you for even these reminders that we are seeing right now of our desperate need to surrender our hearts to you. My hope and my prayer is that you will not allow us to be overwhelmed with fear, but that by your grace we will be overwhelmed as a result of studying your amazing love and grace. And that as you may grant us a period of time that we can once again get back to work for you, as you've designed for us to do, Lord, I pray, please help us to gain every lesson that we need from this experience. And may we go forth with greater power and that we might do your work in a way you'll be pleased and truly be a people prepared to meet our God. This is our prayer that we do ask in the worthy and mighty name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.